I have been known to have some outlandish takes on movies. For instance, I still contend that Dogma is a top three movie of all time, despite the fact that the entire purpose of the movie is an attempt to comically annihilate my own faith. It is joined in my rankings by Fight Club, which purports to do the exact same thing to capitalism, the economic system that I adhere to. I have been lambasted for arguing that Willow is a better movie than The Lord of the Rings, which are excellent in their own right. You just can't beat seeing Mad Mardigan in action while suffering the effects of a love potion gone horribly wrong. But the odd take that is relevant to today's discussion is that Bill and Ted's excellent adventure is an outstanding work of art. The movie served to launch the career of Keanu Reeves, whom honestly I don't believe has ever made a bad movie. And if you look at the list, there are plenty of should-be stinkers in his IMDb catalog. Take Speed, for instance. In that movie, he has to drive a bus without it going under the speed of 50 miles per hour for a full two hours. Despite that boring plotline, it remains to this day an excellent film one from which he's still receiving offers to make a third in the series, 29 years later. In the Matrix movies, Keanu plays a white martial arts master who actually utters the line, I know Kung Fu. That series spawned four movies and grossed over 500 million at the box office. Half a billion dollars. The John Wick franchise is now up to four movies, let me take a moment to explain the entire plot of all of them. Keanu gets a dog. It's super cute. Some idiot kills said cute dog, and then John Wick kills 400 people for the next hour and a half in revenge. But the topper on the Keanu Reeves acting gold is the film The Lake House. In this movie, Keanu and Sandra Bullock fall in love by passing letters through a magic mailbox that teleports his messages to her 30 years in the future. Despite that plotline and the fact that I'm not much of a Sandra Bullock fan, the movie absolutely works. I'm pretty sure it even got a couple of tears out of me. But let's return to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, one which I've even managed to make a legitimate history assignment out of just to provide me an excuse to watch it with each of my classes. In the movie, Ted Theodore Logan, Keanu's character, is part of a music duo that is destined to save the world. When the band's breakup is imminent, George Carlin is sent from the future to lend them a time-traveling telephone booth so that they can collect historical dudes and babes in order to pass their high school history report. The first individual that they grab happens to be Napoleon, who soon is left to his own devices in San Dimas, California, where he proceeds to bowl, finishes the largest bowl of ice cream ever seen, and tackles the most excellent water slides at Waterloo. It is no surprise that out of all of the historical figures available, the writers chose Napoleon, a man whom even students of Bill and Ted's quality can identify as that short, French dude. But Napoleon is far more complicated than what students today know about him. Consider these two facts. First, he wasn't short. And secondly, he wasn't French. 
it seems that just as we need to keep digging to understand the secret of Keanu's unblemished film streak, my guess is that he's literally the nicest guy in Hollywood and thus his karma's off the charts, Napoleon's record also needs to be re-examined. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the first of seven regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number one, Stop Calling Me French. Our story begins oddly enough in Corsica, for although Napoleon was born a Frenchman, he proclaimed that he would die a Corsican. Corsica is a rugged island in the Mediterranean, located southeast of France and to the west of Italy. Its natural beauty, unique culture, and strategic location have made it an attractive target for conquest by numerous empires and nations throughout history. Moreover, the island's tumultuous past is steeped in myths, legends, and fascinating historical details. You probably are aware of the most famous of all legends that surround Corsica, namely the story of Ulysses and the Sirens. According to Greek mythology as told by Homer, the legendary blind Greek poet-storyteller, Ulysses and his crew sailed past the island of Corsica on their route home from the Trojan War. It was when they neared the shores of Corsica that they were beset by the alluring singing of the sirens, which was said to be so beautiful that it could drive sailors to madness and even to death. Ulysses managed to resist the siren's call by having his men tie him to the mast of his ship and to plug their ears with wax. Ulysses alone was left vulnerable to the call and his desire to remain aware and thus fulfill his job as captain, but he was unable to break free from his restraints and succumb to their seductive call. In that way, the crew passed safely by the island. That isn't the only unique mythological connection to an island that very few of us would be able to find on a map, with some arguing that the nation is the legendary home of Atlantis. The legend of the sunken city has captivated people's imaginations for centuries, and Corsica's supposed connection to the myth only adds to the island's mystique. There are several reasons why Corsica has been linked to the highly advanced Atlantis. For starters, the island's rugged terrain and rocky coastlines are reminiscent of the descriptions in ancient texts. Additionally, some historians and archaeologists believe that the ancient Etruscans who lived in what is now Italy may have had a connection to Atlantis, and that they may have traveled to Corsica in search of the lost city. The size of the island nation led Jean-Jacques Rousseau to use Corsica as the basis for a political experiment which he laid out in his social contract. In his political theory, he proposes that the legitimacy of the state and all political authority derives from the consent of the governed. In other words, individuals willingly give up some of their rights in exchange for protection and the common good. In return, the government's role is to serve the people and their interests. 
Rousseau, whose writings helped to usher in the Enlightenment concepts that formed the basis of the French Revolution, believed that Corsica was an ideal laboratory for political experiment, because it was a relatively isolated and homogeneous society, with a history of self-rule and resistance to outside domination. He saw Corsica as an example of a noble savage society that had not been corrupted by the pesky influence of civilization and the state. And he believed that it had the potential to establish a new type of government based on the principles of his social contract. Rousseau's ideal world is based upon the idea of the general will, which he describes as the collective will of the people, which represents the common good and the best interests of society as a whole. The general will is distinct from the will of all, or the will of the majority, which may not necessarily be in the best interests of everyone, making it fascinating that one of the world's greatest authoritarians emerged from this society of noble savages, as Rousseau makes it clear that the only legitimate form of government is one that is based on the general will, which in turn can only be achieved through direct democracy. In fact, he believed that even representative democracy, where individuals delegate their power to elected officials, was fundamentally flawed because it could lead to the interests of the few overriding the interests of the many. Napoleon Bonaparte was born into this ideal laboratory in the Corsican town of Ajaccio in 1769, just a year after France had assumed control of the island. Although he spent much of his life in France, Napoleon always considered himself to be a Corsican and was proud of his island heritage. Historian Andrew Roberts tells us that Napoleon's Corsican identity was a crucial part of his self-image and thus played a monumental role in his rise to power. As a young man, Napoleon was heavily influenced by Corsican nationalism and the island's revolutionary spirit. This inherent sense of nationalism emerged due to a variety of factors, including the island's past history regarding foreign domination and suppression of its language and culture. As historian David Bell notes in his book, The First Total War, Napoleon's Europe and the Birth of Warfare as We Know It, Corsica was a land of stubbornly independent people who had long been subject to foreign rule and exploitation. The Republic of Genoa had controlled Corsica as early as the 13th century, but the Corsican people had continually resisted their rule through a series of uprisings and rebellions. However, it was not until the 18th century that a strong internal movement for Corsican independence began to take shape, led by figures such as Pasquale Paoli. According to historian Peter McPhee in his book The French Revolution, Paoli founded a national assembly, drafted a constitution, established a university, and set up a judicial system in Corsica. This officially marked the birth of the Corsican Republic in 1755, which was recognized by other European powers at the time. Paoli was a charismatic leader who sought to modernize Corsica's economy and society. Introducing a number of reforms during his tenure, as president of the Corsican Republic. However, he also faced significant challenges, 
including the hostility of the neighboring states and the division of Corsican society into rival factions. In 1764, France began to take an interest in Corsica, partly as a result of its strategic location in the Mediterranean and partly due to its desire to expand its territorial holdings. France saw Corsica as a potential navy base, as well as a gateway to perhaps Italy and even the Balkans. It was also becoming increasingly concerned about the influence of the British, who had established a naval base on the nearby island of Menorca. Thus, the French government began to court Paoli and other Corsican leaders, offering them various inducements as well as promises of support. Paoli was initially cautious about France's overtures, but he eventually came around and agreed to a treaty with France in 1768. Under the terms of the deal, Corsica was to become a protectorate of France, with Paoli serving as governor of the island. However, the treaty was not well received by all Corsicans, and many saw it as betrayal of their independence, which had come about a mere 13 years prior. The French quickly went back on their promise to make Paoli governor. Instead, they appointed a series of French governors to administer the land. The Corsicans resented this intrusion on their autonomy and launched a series of uprisings against their French overlords. The most significant of these was a rebellion led by Paoli himself in 1768. The Corsicans were defeated a year later by the French at the Battle of Ponte Novo and Paoli was forced to flee to England, where he remained in exile for most of his life. With Paoli out of the way, the French were able to establish firm control over Corsica. They abolished the Republic and replaced it with a French-styled administration, with French officials and troops taking over the government and the military. They also sought to modernize Corsica's economy and society introducing a number of reforms aimed at promoting trade and agriculture. The French authorities subsequently suppressed the Corsican language and culture, which led to a strong desire among the Corsican people to assert their national identity. As historian J.C. Finlayson notes, Corsican nationalism was born out of a deep sense of grievance and a determination to preserve Corsican culture against the assimilating force of French civilization. Corsican patriots saw themselves as a distinct people with a unique history and culture, and they sought to assert this identity through various means, including literature, music, and of course, political activism. The cult of nationalism remains strong within the island's roots today, a siren song that draws from the legend that has become Napoleon, a man who remains their most famous export. According to historian Eric Hobsbawm in his book Nations and Nationalism Since 1780, Napoleon's birthplace and family connections to Corsica made him a symbol of Corsican identity even if he was not personally involved in the Corsican independence movement. As the historian notes, Napoleon's birth on the island, his own pride in his Corsican origins, and the importance of Corsica in the strategic and political concerns of France during the period when he came to power made him a symbol of Corsican pride and aspiration. 
although Napoleon ultimately abandoned his Corsican roots and went on to become the Emperor of France, his rise to power helped to solidify Corsican nationalism as a powerful force in the island's culture. Even after becoming a ruler of France, Napoleon continued to speak Corsican and maintain close ties with family on the island. Napoleon's father, Carlo Bonaparte, was a prominent figure in the Corsican independence movement and even played a role in negotiating the island's annexation by France in 1768. As a Corsican noble, Carlo belonged to a group of families who held immense land and political power on the island. However, his family was not among the wealthiest or most influential. Historian David Bell tells us that Carlo was not a member of the Corsican elite, but rather a lawyer who had used his talents to rise through the ranks. Carlo's position as a litigator and politician allowed him to earn a comfortable living, but the family's financial system was not always secure. In fact, they faced a number of setbacks over the years, including a fire that engulfed their home, as well as a malpractice lawsuit that threatened to bankrupt Carlo. However, his family managed to recover from these setbacks in order to maintain their influential position in Corsican society. Napoleon's mother, Letizia Romolino, came from a less privileged background than Carlo. Her family were small landowners who lived in a rural area of Corsica. Letizia was known for her strong personality and her ability to manage the family affairs. She played an important role in raising Napoleon and his siblings, and was known for her strict discipline and high expectations. Historians are in complete agreement on that particular detail. Roberts labels her as a formidable presence, a tough autocrat who expected her children to conform to her expectations at all times. Alan Shalm adds that she was known around town for her both sharp tongue and intolerance of misbehavior. While British historian Frank McLinn calls her an uncompromising woman, who brooked no disobedience. One famous story about Letizia's strictness involves Napoleon's older brother, Joseph. According to legend, the elder Bonaparte had been caught stealing sugar from the family's pantry. Letizia punished him severely, making him wear a sign around his neck that read, I am a thief, and forcing him to stand in the town square for several hours as a public humiliation for stealing something from his own pantry. She believed strongly in the value of education and worked hard to ensure that her children received the best possible schooling. However, she was also demanding and critical of their progress. According to Roberts, Letizia would not hesitate to criticize her children harshly if they fell short of her expectations. While her methods may seem severe by modern standards, they were typical of the time and culture during which she lived. Still, she seemed to reserve a little extra gusto for Napoleon, who was often caught misbehaving at school. She was known to have whipped him when he didn't want to attend mass, stole fruit, or in one particularly disturbing instance, laughed at a crippled grandmother. 
The boy took the punishments, but likely never loved his mother, reserving for her only fear and respect. The Bonaparte family held a claim to being a part of the island's noble class, but economically fell somewhere in the upper boundary of the impoverished island's middle class. Still, Napoleon didn't go hungry too many nights as the family owned two houses in Corsica that provided them with a certain level of financial security. The first of which was located in Ajaccio, the capital of Corsica, and was known as Casa Bonaparte. The house had been in the family for several generations and was the site of many family gatherings and celebrations. It has been described as a handsome stone building with a walled garden and a courtyard. The second house was located in a nearby village of Bocanaro and was known as the Mason Bonaparte. This house had been purchased by Carlo in the 1760s and served as a summer residence for the family. The Mason Bonaparte was a simpler and more rustic building than Casa Bonaparte, but it was still a substantial property. The ownership of these houses allowed the Bonaparte family to maintain a certain level of financial security, even during periods of political turmoil or economic hardship. However, it is important to again note that the family's financial situation was not always secure. They faced a number of setbacks over the years, including the loss of a significant portion of their land due to a dispute with a neighboring family. Vendettas were baked into the culture of Corsica, with the task of seeking revenge continuing all the way down through seven generations. Perhaps if the producers of John Wick had made Keanu's character Corsican, the franchise could survive beyond Chapter 4. In one infamous disagreement, the aggrieved side refused to shave until the affront had been avenged. Bonaparte's backyard feud began in the 1780s and centered around a piece of land that both families claimed ownership of. Neither side was willing to back down, as the land was an important source of income for both families. According to some accounts, the dispute began when Carlo allowed his sheep to graze on the disputed land. The Pazzo di Borgio family objected, claiming that the property was theirs and that both Carlo and his flock were trespassing. Carlo decided to represent himself, responding by arguing that the land had been part of his family's property for generations. The dispute escalated over the years, with both families filing lawsuits against each other and engaging in juvenile acts of retaliation. According to historian David Bell, the legal battles between the two families continued for years, with each side accusing the other of fraud, perjury, and intimidation. The feud had serious consequences for both families. The legal costs of it were significant and threatened to independently bankrupt Carlo. The tension between the two families also escalated to violence on several occasions, In one incident, a member of the Pazzo de Borgio family shot and killed Carlo's brother, Lucien. The killer was never brought to justice, and the incident added to the bitterness of the feud. The dispute between the Bonapartes and de Borgio families was one of several conflicts that plagued Corsican society in the 18th century. 
these internal conflicts often centered around issues of land ownership and political power, and they reflected the complex social and economic dynamics of the island. For the Bonaparte family, the feud with their neighbors was a reminder of their precarious position in Corsican society and the challenges they faced in maintaining their status and influence. Despite these setbacks, the Bonaparte family remained an influential and respected presence in Corsican society. Carlo and Letizia were known for their intelligence, wit, and political acumen. And their children were well-educated and ambitious. The family's middle-class position in Corsican society provided Napoleon with a certain level of privilege and opportunity. But it also meant that he had to work hard to achieve success in the highly competitive world of French politics and military service. A new boss arriving from outside of your organization always represents a turbulent time. Oftentimes, they have different ways of looking at situations and thus regularly upset a few people during the time of transition. When there's a major conflict regarding the old versus new ways of doing things, workers need to decide whose side they are going to take. The right decision typically results in an improvement within their work life, while siding with the wrong faction typically results in one's working life being turned upside down. With the French moving into Corsica, the local officials had to choose to accept their new overlords or to resist. Napoleon's father decided to align himself with the newcomers. It was a decision that resulted in a promotion. In 1778, when Napoleon was just eight years old, Carlo was appointed as assessor to the royal court of the capital. This appointment brought the Bonaparte family into closer contact with French officials and further exposed them to French culture and education. There is little information regarding Napoleon's childhood. McLean believes that he was sent to a school for girls run by nuns and that he was the terror of the playground. Such an upbringing may have contributed to his awkwardness around women during his younger years, something that we will explore in far greater detail in our next episode. There is also strong evidence that he attended a primary school run by the Jesuits. The stories that emerge from his early education suggest that Napoleon was already prone to explosive tantrums, including pulling the stuffing out of the school's chairs. It likely didn't help that he showed clear signs early on of being a pathological liar. In 1779, Napoleon's father sent him and his older brother Joseph to a school in Autun, France, in order to receive a French education. The school was expensive, however, and the family struggled to pay for it. After a year, Napoleon's father decided to send the boys to the military school in Brine-la-Château, which was fully funded by the French government and offered scholarships to promising students. Napoleon initially struggled to adjust to life at Brienne. He was teased by his classmates for his Corsican accent and his lack of fluency regarding the French language. 
but Carlo had thrown his lot in with the French government and believed that aligning himself and his family with French culture and education would benefit their future prospects in Corsican society. By sending his sons to school in France, Carlo was exposing them to the language, culture, and values of their future rulers, thus helping to prepare them for a career in public service. But the boy's experience wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Brain was a military college built on the former grounds of a monastery. Its stated aim was to prepare the sons of the nobility for eventual cadetship in the armed services. However, in practice, it was more of a gentleman's finishing school for the nobility of France. McLinn tells us that the students were regularly put against each other, with the best pupils being selected for the artillery, the engineers, and the navy, and the mediocre ones reserved for the infantry. Only those too stupid even for the cavalry would be sent back in disgrace to their families. Napoleon spent five formative years in Brienne, trapped in the school's two corridors, which included 70 former cells that constituted the students' rooms. To discourage the rampant homosexuality that happened within the confines of the boys' only finishing school, students were locked into their cells promptly at 10 p.m. each evening until the 6 a.m. alarm sound. Despite its sterling reputation, the teachers at the school were deemed to have been of poor caliber and at times downright incompetent. In fact, official inspections of the school found signs of laziness and outright indiscipline from both students and staff. McLinn calls the young man's social and personal formation at the school as nothing short of disastrous. The historian writes that three things combined to turn him into a misanthropic recluse when he was not yet in his teens. Brutality, social snobbery, and racial prejudice. The abuse came from teachers and students alike, with Napoleon once having been forced to eat his dinner while kneeling down in the cafeteria while being forced to wear a dunce's cap. The experience was so distressing that it left the young boy physically sick afterwards. The young men in his age group were unrelenting, referring to him as the Little Corsican, a taunting nickname that remained until the end of his days. The French sons of nobility refused to elevate his status as a minor member of Corsica's nobility to that of their own. He was particularly brutalized for his unwillingness to engage in any homosexual acts with the other children. It didn't help that he was unable to shed his Italian accent, making each and every French word that he spoke identify the scarlet letter that made him different from those around him. Consensus opinion is that Napoleon exhibited only two moods, the first of which was that of a reserved meditative loner who would turn to violence if provoked. His only other mood was an aggressive gang leader. McLinn describes the young man as a person who liked to cultivate a surface of calm no matter how grave the crisis. The calmness and unflappability were supposed to denote a mathematical rationality, but they concealed a volcano beneath, which would often come spewing out in the form of violent rage.
Napoleon showed a fighting spirit in everything that he did. Take, for instance, the history of his own land. His father's acceptance of the French government had allowed him access to a superior education. But Napoleon zigged where his dad zagged, regularly defending Paoli and his failed independent Corsican Republic. Reportedly, he lashed out at one teacher by proclaiming that Paoli was a great man, he loved his fatherland, and I shall never be able to forgive my father, who was his assistant, for helping to unite Corsica to France. He should have followed his fortunes and succumbed with Paoli. The verbal fights nearly always turned physical, showing that Napoleon's Napoleonic complex was a part of his DNA and not a learned behavior. 1789, he would write to his idol Paoli a letter, accusing him of essentially ruining his entire life. The boy wrote, As the nation of Corsica was perishing, I was born. Thirty thousand Frenchmen were vomited onto our shores, drowning the throne of liberty in waves of blood. Such was the odious sight which was the first to strike me. From my birth, my cradle was surrounded by the cries of the dying, the groans of the oppressed, and tears of despair. You left our island, and with you went all hope of happiness. Slavery was the price of our submission, crushed by the triple yoke of the soldier, the lawmaker, and the tax inspector. Our compatriots live despised. When he was down on himself, his favorite punching bag was the privileged French boys around him. His experience as a foreigner who was scrapped for cash made him resent those from noble houses. Later on in life, he would refer to these types of individuals as the curse of the nation, imbeciles, hereditary asses. Carrying this chip on his shoulder meant that he regularly had trouble making friends. His height of five foot six inches didn't help, despite the fact that it was average for a Frenchman during this time. Each of these factors helped to produce a loner who felt that the world was against him at all times. It was enough to start him on the course of joining the infamous League of History's Short Dictators, a group that includes Caesar, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and Franco. Students at Brienne learned Latin infused with logic for their morality lessons. German was taught to all as it might come in handy in a future war. History, geography, and mathematics were taught so that students would be better able to understand the advantages that came with topography and fortification. Napoleon excelled within the field of mathematics. Literature, not so much. Rather than focusing on the Latin classics, he gravitated towards Plutarch's histories on the ancient Greeks, as well as every story he managed to come across regarding Julius Caesar. Like many of my own students, however, he failed to grasp the lesson of Caesar, namely that he was the villain. History is regularly taught through a school of thought that is referred to as Great Man History. This traditional method of teaching history has a number of drawbacks. First, it creates a narrow and limited view of history, which oftentimes marginalizes the contributions of women and people of color in the shaping of our world. 
Second, it biases the life of the individual. No one is all good, but focusing on the positives means placing the great man on a pedestal which often leaves out the negative aspect of their lives. Third, it sidelines systemic issues including social and economic structures and cultural attitudes as to why the great man was able to accomplish what they were able to accomplish in the first place. Fourth and finally, it creates a disconnection from personal experience, as most students don't see themselves represented in the stories that are being told. This last part wasn't a problem for young Napoleon, who quickly identified himself as the next Julius Caesar. He was particularly drawn to accounts of Caesar's military campaigns and conquests, which he saw as examples of great leadership and courage. After all, Caesar's career had begun by conquering France. Napoleon's fascination with the usurper of the Roman Republic was reflected in his own ambitions and aspirations. He saw himself as a great leader and conqueror, like Caesar, and sought to emulate his hero's success and legacy. In 1789, Napoleon applied to join the Navy. The Inspector General report on the candidate is enlightening. It reads, Height, 5 foot 3, Constitution, excellent health, docile expression, mild, straightforward, thoughtful. Conduct most satisfactory, has always been distinguished for his application in mathematics. He is fairly well acquainted with history and geography. He is weak in all accomplishments, drawing, dancing, music, and the like. This boy would make an excellent sailor, the report concludes, deserves to be admitted to the school in Paris. Before it could happen, however, his family's past dragged him down. His father went bankrupt after spending a small fortune lobbying Louis XVI to have the disputed estate returned to him. The king did grant him 4,000 francs for his hardship related to the fight with the de Bourgeau family, but the absurd costs of lobbying in Paris meant that he came back home without a penny for his large family. Although Napoleon was the second-born son of the Bonapartes, his parents would go on to have six more children. By 1782, Carlo was visibly distraught by the hardship he had endured. Although the family didn't yet know that his physical appearance was wasting away due to an advanced form of stomach cancer. Sensing his time was short, he attempted to put his house in order, sending his son Lucien to Brienne in the custody of the brooding loner that was the boy's older brother Napoleon. The eldest son of the family, Joseph, wasn't capable of taking Lucien in as he had become destitute, having decided to quit his studies in the seminary. In 1785, Napoleon's father succumbed to cancer, leaving his family's fortunes in a horrendous state. The emotions that were expressed by Napoleon upon his father's passing were those of indifference as well as relief. Napoleon was officially identified as the provider for the family and had to give up his ambitions to join the Naval Academy, which would have required substantial funds. Needing to make some money quicker, he shifted horizontally to join a lesser military school in Paris. Before entering his new school, he had time to purchase one book. He chose 
Gil Blas, which is the story of an impoverished Spanish boy who rose to high political office. It was a story which he would soon emulate. The École Royal School of Paris was quite different from what he had grown accustomed to in Brienne. The classrooms were papered in blue and gold ornamentation rather than cells. The students slept in a large dormitory warmed by earthenware stoves, and each of the 215 cadets were granted their own study cubicle. Napoleon appreciated his new lifestyle, writing that we were magnificently fed and served treated in every way like officers possessed of great wealth, certainly greater than that of most of our families and far above what many of us would enjoy later on. Still, he didn't necessarily think that this newfound opulence was ideal. After coming to power, he specifically returned the military academies to a life that revolved around Spartan austerity. During this period of his life, the young man focused exclusively on his studies, seeking to become an artillery officer, one of the highest ranks that such a school could award. He set himself apart by testing on all four volumes of the textbook within a single year period, and by the age of 16 was commissioned as a second lieutenant, the first step in achieving his new dream. He was thrown into real action with the onset of the French Revolution. In 1789, his unit was dispatched to quell grain riots in a nearby town. The revolution was just in its infancy, and the riots were dispersed before Bonaparte's forces arrived on the scene. Napoleon had revolutionary sympathies, but followed orders to the T throughout the next couple of years, fulfilling his pledge of loyalty to the nation and its Bourbon king. Ironically, it was while on leave that he began to involve himself in the revolution's ideology. Back home in Corsica, he became engaged in local politics upon finding the island in a state of political turmoil, the cause of which was the fact that the island's most prominent leader, Pascali Paoli, had returned from his exile seeking to reestablish the Corsican Republic. Upon his arrival on Corsica's shores, Napoleon helped to form the capital's Jacobin Club and further aligned himself with the politics of Paoli and the revolution. He delayed his departure from Corsica as long as he could, even going so far as to claim that illness kept him from returning to the French ranks. His return to France occurred before the king's disastrous escape attempt, during which he was spotted by somebody who thought that the man in the poorly fitting wig bore a striking resemblance to the king which adorned the coins in his pocket. For Napoleon, the events of that day resulted in him swearing a new oath to maintain the constitution against all enemies, internal and external, and to obey no orders except those validated by the National Assembly. Royalist officers, of which the Jacobin Napoleon certainly wasn't, resigned by the hundreds, opening up the opportunity for promotions. Within his own regiment, 32 officers resigned in disgust. Those who stayed, such as Napoleon, 
moved through the ranks as quickly as a bus driven by Keanu Reeves. Even though things were progressing at the speed of light in the nation's capital, Napoleon returned again to Corsica in order to be at the bedside of his great-uncle Archdeacon Lucian. Three things came out of this moment. First of all, Napoleon defied his chain of command after his shore leave had been denied. Historical documents place the young soldier simultaneously in both Paris and Corsica for a moment. The likelihood was that the disorganization of the revolutionary forces played in the young soldier's favor as one of his acquaintances presumably pretended to be him during roll call each day. Secondly, while on his deathbed, the archdeacon left behind a sizable fortune, likely pilfered directly from the church's coffers. This finally meant that the Bonaparte family was able to escape their perpetually impoverished state. Third, this economic windfall bought Napoleon political clout, allowing him to rub elbows with the elites of the Third Estate who were orchestrating the chaos in Paris. But Corsica was still at the forefront of his thoughts, and in 1791, he used the archdeacon's fortune to bribe his way into being elected into one of two military leadership positions on the island, which he then used to bully Paoli's opposition into submission. Although he would have liked to have stayed by Paoli's side, the National Assembly ordered an official review of the armed forces on January 1st, 1792, and found Napoleon to be missing from action. Without a legitimate excuse, the Ministry of War proclaimed that he has given up his profession and has been replaced. Three months later, he was back in Paris, intent on pleading his case. The jury deliberated in his favor, but on May 7th, Napoleon was already writing home to his brother, expressing a desire to return to his homeland. Events permanently changed three days later, with the assault against the king in the Truwalese Palace. Napoleon was an eyewitness to the carnage, writing, I found myself lodging in Paris at the mall in the Place des Victories. At the sound of the tocsin and on learning that the palace was under attack, I ran to the carousel to find Borine's brother Favolette, who kept a furniture shop there. It was from this house that I was able to witness at my ease all the activities of that day. Before reaching the carousel, I had been met in the Rue des Pachamps by a group of hideous men bearing a head at the end of a pike. Seeing that I was presently dressed and had the appearance of a gentleman, they approached me and asked me to shout, Long live the Republic, which you can easily imagine I did without difficulty. With the palace broken into and the king there in the heart of the assembly, I ventured to go into the garden. The sight of the dead Swiss guards gave me an idea of the meaning of death, such as I have never had sense on any of my battlefields. Perhaps it was that the smallness of the area made the number of corpses appear larger, or perhaps it was because this was the first time I had undergone such an experience. 
I saw well-dressed women committing acts of the grossest indecency on the corpses of the Swiss guards. Although he was fully sympathetic to the revolution, it was this experience that helped guide him to the conclusion that the mob could never be trusted. More so, he realized that with a firm hand, something that the king hadn't displayed would have been enough to have saved the lives of the dead guards that the young man was unable to get out of his sight. Soon, he would be the one to face down the increasingly destructive mob, a move that would see him elevated into a position of power as a member of the French Directory. We'll tell that story in Episode 3, after first introducing you to a side of Napoleon that few knew, that of a hopeless romantic in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look at the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.